Good morning. This is uh, our last Friday with New Life Church. And uh, although we are excited about the ministry, oh, the children can, the children can be dismissed, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we are excited about the ministry that God has called us to uh, back, in, uh, back in Georgia. But we're going to miss this fellowship. We're going to miss you guys. Uh, we, we love you all, and our hearts are full. Our, our lives have been uh, changed, transformed in this time that we've been here. And, and uh, our lives have been enriched. Uh, and listen, uh, we, we look forward to the day when uh, we'll be with you guys again. Uh, so this is not goodbye, as the slide said. Uh, this is uh, see you on the other side. And whether the other side is the other side of the world or other side of this life, still, we'll see you all again, and we're looking forward to that. And just, we just praise God, and we thank Him for this time that we've had here, and we thank Him uh, for the new opportunity that He set before us. And... Uh, Thank you, Pastor Gareth, uh, that uh, you've given me this opportunity to say some parting words and to bring a message from God's Word. We're going to take a break uh, from the Ten Commandments, that the series that we've been going through. I think there's only one, maybe two more, if it splits into two more uh, in that series. Uh, but today we're going to look at Romans uh, chapter 12 and verses 1 through 2. It's a very familiar passage. And it gives us some instructions about discerning God's will. And so that's what we're going to look at today, discerning God's will. God's will is sometimes referred to as if it has been uh, made apparent simply because a particular event happened. Uh, but that's not the case. A lot of things are happening that are not God's will. That doesn't mean he's not in control. It just means we've been given a choice and we choose poorly. Uh, the unborn are murdered. Children are abused and neglected. A lot of really terrible things are going on in the world. We can't blame that on God. So in the same way, we can't really just arbitrarily attribute to God the things that are going on in our, the direction of our lives, the things that are going on in our lives, as if we are just puppets being driven along. And the Bible here in Romans chapter 12 gives us some instructions about knowing God's will. And that's what we want to find out. What is, what is God's will and how, how can we uh, engage So we, we can't just sit idly by and say, you know, God's will will happen to me. Although, if we sit idly by long enough and continue doing as we please, at the judgment day, God's will will definitely happen to all of us. But thankfully, we don't have to wait until then. <laughs> For God to direct us exactly what we will do at that time, we can find his will 
and engage in it now. We have a formula set out right here uh, by which we can set the conditions for knowing God's will. Romans chapter 12, though, is a point of transition between doctrine and ethics. In fact, you could draw in your Bible an arrow pointing backwards from Romans chapter 12 and label it doctrine or what must I believe. And then you could draw another arrow going forward uh, from that point and label it ethics or how must I live. It's important that we get it in the right order, though. Romans 1 through 11 emphasizes what we must believe. 12 through 16 emphasizes how we must live. But the balance and the order of the doctrine and the ethics is vitally important for salvation. This is not just an academic uh, evaluation of what's going on in the Scripture. Salvation is at stake. Eternity is at stake. And a life lived in his will is at stake. The ethics that we live out in Romans 12 through 16, it has to be based on the doctrines of the gospel in Romans 1 through 11. And listen, it's not as simple as you might think when I put it in those terms because throughout history, it's been out of balance many times and out of order many times. And there are fatal errors and grave consequences which result from an imbalance or being out of sequence with our doctrine and our ethics. We need to get this right, okay? For instance, Martin Luther was addressing a fatal error of the Catholic Church, his church, his own church, and he eventually separated from that church in a move that has become known, we know as, the Reformation. It's the beginning of the Protestant church. And we are the protesters <laughs> in the Protestant church. We're part of the ongoing Reformation from what Martin Luther did. He was studying the book of Romans in great detail. He was a monk in the Catholic church studying the book of Romans when he discovered that the church was wildly imbalanced in their doctrine and their ethics. They were teaching salvation by works through the sacraments and in particular uh, the indulgences. The Catholic church was teaching that you can quite literally pay for your own sins by giving money to the church, paying for indulgences many other things that they were teaching in that regard. But Luther discovered in Scripture, in Romans in particular, that Christ paid for our sins and salvation came by grace and through faith. We still get it wrong today. I mean, I still struggle at times in my own heart in why I'm doing what I'm doing. And we have to continually keep this in balance. Many times a reaction to error, like Luther was actually doing there, becomes an overreaction. And that's why Luther said he felt the urge to tear the book of James out of his Bible. 
Now, he didn't do it literally. It's just words, you know. It's just like he was like, he was reacting against an error. And the book of James is reacting against the opposite extreme, or it's written against the opposite extreme. And so he had this urge, and that's, you know, the reading in, in the book of James. We're going to read a minute uh, some, some, another passage in James. See, James argues, like I said, against that opposite extreme that Luther faced, an imbalance towards doctrine, so that belief at an intellectual level is all that is needed for salvation. And that's simply not true. It's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. If we pluck a few verses out of their context, it will seem here in a moment that we have a contradiction in Scripture. But we're going to work through that. Turn to James chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, verses 14 through 24. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now listen, I I am talking about the will of God. (laughs) Believe me, that's what we're getting to. Uh, That's that's what the scripture's leading up to. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see then that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wow. If you know anything about Martin Luther, you can see exactly right there why he struggled with this because he was waving the banner that faith is by grace and through faith. I mean, uh, salvation is by grace and through faith. We turn to Ephesians, Paul, that we're going to look in some detail in the book of Romans, Paul uh, elaborated about what we must do to gain this salvation. But he very succinctly says it in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, is this a contradiction in Scripture? On the face, it does seem that way. If you read just one verse beyond what Paul said, you'll see that he is also trying to encourage us not to get out of balance one way or the other, he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul is defending 
this truth of the gospel from this extreme. And James is defending the truth of the gospel from this extreme, between doctrine and ethics, or faith and works. But the truth of the gospel resides between that tension. So that what we believe is evidenced by what we do and not what we say or what we think. What we really believe will come out of our life in what we do. And that's not earning salvation either, which is what Paul was trying to say. You can't earn it. It's a gift. Romans chapter 12, we're, we're going to go into some great detail here. And, and we're, we're doing this because it's essential to know God's will. We have to get this right if we want to know God's will. Romans 12 represents the fulcrum or a pivot point between doctrine and ethics, like I said before, which is why we're looking at it so closely. It's extremely important. You're probably asking, though, you know, what does that have to do with discerning God's will? And my answer is everything. This has everything to do with knowing God's will. Everything. If we want to know God's will, we need to know this. Paul says at the end of verse 2, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I found in studying this passage, short passage, just two verses, that the focal point is this living sacrifice, this up in verse 1. This living sacrifice in verse 1 is the basis of his statement about discerning God's will. So, we want to discern God's will, we need to look closely at this living sacrifice. It is the key which unlocks the mystery of God's will. I want to highlight three points that Paul makes about this living sacrifice, because this is how we set the conditions for knowing God's will. I'm afraid that many are trying to find God's will without setting the conditions that are necessary. If the conditions are not set, then no checklist for finding God's will will actually help you find it. No amount of crying and screaming and jumping and sacrificing will help you find God's will. I mean, unless that checklist helps you set these conditions in and around this living sacrifice, what is it about that that helps us know God's will? The main point I'm trying to make in everything I'm saying today is this. The will of God is revealed when our own will is completely abandoned. That's the main idea. And I'm going to support that with these three points about the living sacrifice. The conditions are set by the impetus of the living sacrifice, verse 1a. The essence of the living sacrifice, that's verse 1b. And the entailments of this living sacrifice, that's verse 2b. Let's read this passage. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we want to know your will. We want to do your will. And Lord, will you show us in your word today how we can know what you would have for us and how we can engage in your purpose and that how we can be used to further your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first of all, the conditions for knowing God's will are set through the impetus of the living sacrifice. Now, I use some cute words there so they sound good together, but the impetus is just basically means, it literally means the motivation, okay? The motivation for the living sacrifice. And Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. So the motivation for this sacrifice is indicated here. Therefore refers back to everything that precedes all of that doctrine in chapters 1 through 11. Mercies of God is, harkens back to all of that that he said in verses 1 through 11. If we want to have the right motive for this living sacrifice, we must understand that gospel message. The sacrifice must be based on the doctrinal foundation of the gospel. See, we can't just offer anything we want in any way we want to God. You can't. We have to do our offering on his terms. Let's look back and briefly discuss what Paul set out as the impetus for the living sacrifice. Now, we're going to go back and look at just some pieces through every chapter and see exactly what Paul is basing this statement on. Because he's literally saying, listen, because of this, this is our response. So because of what? I mean, so what? What is it that he's saying? Romans 1.16 is argued by many to be Paul's thesis for the entire book of Romans. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And everything else that Paul says in the book of Romans is in some way an expansion of that thesis, a support, an argument to support this thesis. It demands some questions, this thesis, and and Paul sets out to answer all these questions throughout the book of Romans, like, what is the gospel? What power does God have? Salvation from what? And what must I believe, everyone who believes? And, And he sets out to explain it throughout the book of Romans. Chapter 1 tells us that God punishes unrighteousness because he is holy. 1.18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So he sets out right at the beginning, this is our unsolvable problem. We cannot solve this problem. Right at the beginning, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 2 and 3 informs us that we are all in the same boat. There's no hierarchy in God's kingdom. All in the same boat, 
3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God will pour out his wrath on unrighteousness, and we're all unrighteous. So we have a huge problem, and we can't solve it. Romans 4 tells us that faith justifies. Faith, just, faith solved the pro- is, is, is the solution. Not good deeds, not your pedigree, not your Jewish heritage or any other heritage, not your bloodline, not your parents, not your social status. None of that is going to help us. Referring to Abraham in 4, 20 through 22, Paul says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. You see, Paul, again, it seems like a contradiction, uses Abraham to say his faith justified him. James, we just read it, uses Abraham to say the only reason we know that Abraham had faith is because he raised the knife. What he did is the evidence that he believed. And it's true for us too. If you're not willing to raise the knife, it's because you don't believe. Listen, this is so important for us. So important for us. Salvation is at stake. What we do is the evidence of what we believe. That's what both Paul And James are trying to tell us. Same thing. Romans 5 informs us of the object of our faith. We can't just believe in any old thing. 5.17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we must have faith in Jesus. Romans 6, immediately on the heels of Paul's explanation of the free gift of righteousness, explains that the effect on us is that the sinful man dies with Christ. So here again, already Paul is doing this faith, evidence of faith. He's going to go back and forth here. Do you not know in 6, 3 through 4? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that Jesus, just as, sorry, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So faith, real belief, is evidenced in your life. Not by what you think and not by what you say. It's by what you do. Romans 7, as if Paul anticipates an error in the opposite direction, again, instructs us to repent from our works. So here we go, back again. He's like, look, you're not earning it. In 7, 6, he says, but now we are released from the law. These 10 commandments that we've been studying we, you know, we, you, feel like, you feel like you're just like going here and there and here and there, right? 
We're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, what is that new way? We're not released from what the commandments tell us. We are free to obey. (laughs) And this is the tension that we have between doctrine and ethics. And we have to get it right. Salvation is at stake. Having laid all this groundwork now, Paul, now we're just leading up to the, what, what, does, what did Paul mean when he said, therefore, in, in 12.1? But now, at this point, Paul is poised and he's ready to say what he's been wanting to say. And in chapter 8, we find what I like to call our declaration of independence from sin. Through complete reliance on Christ. What Paul is saying in chapter 8 is, let freedom ring. We have freedom in Christ, freedom from our sinful nature, not the freedom that some people talk about in Christ to do what you want. That's not what he's talking about here. It's the exact opposite. We have free, dumb to obey where we could not before. He empowers us. 8.24 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? Does that mean we don't obey these Ten Commandments that Pastor Gareth has been preaching about? No, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, that problem that we could not solve, because God will pour out his wrath on all unrighteousness, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who, who are those? Who, who is us? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the evidence of our faith, how we walk. We can't earn it. You can't do it to appease God, but the proper response, the proper belief, trusting in what God has done will produce this response. That's what the Bible says. I don't know any other way to apply it. There is no other way to read it and apply it to my life. This is what I read in the Bible. And this is what I see to be true. I cannot just say I believe. Because the amazing things that God has done for us, it must produce some response in my life that is evidence that I believe it. It must. Anything else is just disrespectful to God. Not me or anyone else is disrespectful to God in all that he's done. Romans 9 through 11 informs us of the sovereignty of God. See, we do not own God. It's important that Paul points this out. He owns us. Israel doesn't have any exclusive rights to God. That's what Paul is trying to say here. You don't have exclusive rights to God. Salvation is with him and he will have mercy on who he pleases. And this is his argument that 
Israel is not the sole uh, recipient of God's mercy and grace. We have no right and no footing from which to question God in the way he administers his mercy and grace. It's with him, it's his. We can't manipulate him. We can label that grace whatever we wish, and people have labeled it so many different ways, and they've fought about it. It makes no difference what we call it, because it's not ours to give. What we should do is realize that God is sovereign and fall down before him and beg for mercy. (laughs) And his word says that he will give mercy. 9, 15 through 16 says... Uh, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You cannot will him to save you. The judgment of who he saves and when he saves is with him alone. He will give mercy and grace to whomever he judges and sees fit to do so. We cannot own that from him or or take that from him. He gives it. 10.13 says, in case you're uh, inclined to take that too far, 10.13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that's not manipulating God. God is still, if you call on him, he is still the one who saves you. It is not your word that saves you. It is his judgment and decision to save you when you call on his name. So you can't just say a formulaic prayer and say, God saved me. No, salvation is with him. It's not about who, what anyone else says. So if you have any question about it, go back to him and plead for mercy. Beg, ask him to forgive you. The Bible says he will. He will have mercy on whom he will, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here's this tension, you know? How do we know exactly when he saves someone? We don't. God knows. Salvation is with him. He's sovereign in that. We must yield to him and trust him. You know, we can't can't try to... uh, nail down God with too much precision in this area. And that's, I believe, this tension that we have here is resolved in uh, chapter 11, 33 through 36. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? We can never lose the wonder of the unsearchable mystery of who God is. Because when we attempt to nail him down with too much precision in this area. We lose the childlike faith that just just says, I I don't know you completely, 
understand you completely, but I trust you. And that's the faith that God is looking for. We cannot own him completely. All that we just covered constitutes the impetus or the motivation for the living sacrifice. The gospel is the motivation. The gospel message is the motivation for us giving ourselves a living sacrifice. Now, if we could come up with a summary statement of this gospel, we could replace therefore in verse 12:1 with that statement and possibly clarify the motivation for the living sacrifice and get this in the right order. John Stott, he did summarize it, and he did it this way. The gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners in giving his son to die for them, in justifying them freely by faith, in sending them the life-giving spirit, and in making them his children. That's John Stott's summary. I started to do my own summary, but I, I thought it'd probably be better to use his. So if we insert this statement in place of therefore in our 12.1, it would be this. I appeal to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move the uh, pronouns a little bit so it, it fits in with the verse. I appeal to you because of God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners like us in giving his son to die for us and justifying us freely by faith in sending us the life-giving spirit and in making us his children. Brothers, by these mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's because of all that he's done, not to appease him. Christ appeased him. Because of all that he's done, listen, nothing else really makes any sense. It doesn't fit together. If we want to know God's will, we must be motivated by the truth of the gospel to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Number two, that was a long one. The next two are... <laughs> are not so long. The conditions for knowing God's will are set through the essence of the living sacrifice. And we're, we're boring down on this living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The sacrifice we see in that verse is being just some characteristics of this sacrifice or the essence of it is holistic. He says, your body, it is continuous because it's living. It's holy and acceptable. Paul says to present your bodies, and that's all of you. We have to be all in, fully committed, nothing held back. We must be willing to do anything or nothing. Go anywhere or nowhere. Work any job or no job. And serve all people. It's all in. All or nothing. That's what Paul says. Your body, that's holistic. That's all of us. I'm holding nothing back. If we want to know God's will, we must abandon our own will 
to direct our own lives. And this is how we unlock the mystery of God's will for our lives. We have to exchange our hopes and our dreams, our hopes and our dreams for God's. It's the only way. Stop climbing the ladder. Stop competing with the Joneses. Put everything on the table. Everything is a possibility of what God wants me to do. We can't ask God to just bless what we want to do. In light of all that God has done to accomplish our salvation, again, nothing else really makes any sense. It doesn't really fit together. It's like this, this doesn't really seem like a proper response to what Christ did. We're doing our sermon study. Uh, Curtis told a little story. I'm going to share it with you that illustrates this well. Yeah, he's a hardworking man, you know, providing for his family, um, trying to do everything he can to make sure they have all they need. He's sitting at the breakfast table with his daughter, air conditioning blowing in their face, right? <laughs> Probably has new shoes, <laughs> cute little, you know, shirt and cute little pants. And, you know, he's just like, wow, you know, I love my daughter. And, you know, I'm so happy that I could do all this for her. And, ah, oh, you know, she's eating these Cheerios. And, wow, you know, this is great. And he says uh, to her, hey, can I have some Cheerios? He gives her one little, she, she gives him one little Cheerio. One little Cheerio. And she's trying to appease him. She's trying to be like, okay, gave you your Cheerio. What must Curtis be thinking? <laughs> it's like, I bought those Cheerios. Come on. I'm paying the mortgage. I'm paying for this light bill. I'm, I mean, everything. I did it all. One Cheerio. I mean, come on. Is that what we're doing? Are we trying to give God just one Cheerio? That's what John said, too. He said, listen, we got to give him the whole box of Cheerios. Like, here you go. Here you go. I'm yours. Hey, look, you gave it to me. You gave it to me anyway. Just give him the whole box of Cheerios. We have to be all in. All in. Also, a living sacrifice is ongoing. It's continual. Living. The living sacrifice. It's not a one-off commitment or a prayer you prayed years ago. That's not it. You know, it's praying that prayer every morning. Same prayer. Have mercy on me. It's not one time committing your life, but moment by moment committing your whole life. That's the whole box of Cheerios too, right? If we want to know God's will, give him every day, day by day. You want to know God's will? This is the formula. See, God is not interested. This is shocking. God is not interested in your plan. He has a plan. 
It's better. The living sacrifice must also be holy. That means set apart for him. Set apart from what? Well, chapters 12 through 16 tells us, but I don't have time to go through all that like I did the first. But in short, those who desire to know and do God's will cannot go some places. You cannot see some things. You cannot hear some things. We're set apart for him. That's the living sacrifice. That's how you live it out. I'm not going to go into all the details of what all those things are, but we are, if we are in relation with him, he makes it obvious. The living sacrifice must be acceptable also. We can try to make it acceptable ourselves, but how do we do that? You know, why was Cain's sacrifice back in Genesis again why was Cain's sacrifice unacceptable? I mean, think about that for a minute. I mean, he worked hard. He grew some fruits and vegetables, and he wanted to offer that to God. I mean, why was that not accepted? The reason is because he tried to justify himself on his own terms, and we can't do that. Listen, God owns us. And he's going to do with us whatever he will. We have to come to him on his terms. Our sacrifice is only acceptable when presented on God's terms. Those terms, chapters 1 through 11. You know, if God doesn't call me to be an elder, then being an elder is just trying to justify myself. That's just me trying to work it out. That's just me trying to give him a sacrifice. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't need anything from us. He's okay. He's doing fine. Nothing's ever going to happen bad to him. Don't worry about him. <laughs> you know, we worry. Uh, that we, think, we think somehow we're going to give him something to appease him. No, just yield and trust and obey. He has a plan. And it's better. It's better than our plan. It must be acceptable. An acceptable sacrifice, as I said, is presented on God's terms. Paul tacks on the end of these characteristics of the living sacrifice, this overarching description, okay? Which is your spiritual worship? This is your spiritual worship. You know, what we're doing here today in our Worship service is actually just preparing to worship him out there with our lives, <laughs> moment by moment. And we're, this is just worship preparation. If we want to know God's will, our living sacrifice must be all in, the whole box of Cheerios, perpetual, ongoing, living, set apart, holy on God's terms. Finally, the conditions for knowing God's will are set through the entailments of the living sacrifice. 2A begins, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
This verse is the beginning of Paul's explanation of how to, how to be a living sacrifice. He, he told us the characteristics. Now, this is the beginning of how to do it. And he continues through the whole book, the rest of the book. How to be a living sacrifice. He says, do not be influenced by the world, but rather influence the world with the gospel. Matthew 5, 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. You know, our response to the gospel is to bring more glory to him so that others will also be uh, able to encounter through our response, his characteristics and be influenced by who God is. That's what we're doing here, this light that we shine. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, its value system. First Peter 4.4 4 tells us how it does that or how it's attempting to do that. They think it's strange that you, that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. This is the pressure that's exerted on us to conform to the world's way of doing things. He says don't be conformed. At the top of Paul's list of the world system, Robert pointed this out in our study. He said, hey, just, let's just look down a little bit and this is what he's talking about. It's right there. The top of the list is pride and competition. Verse 3, he instructs us not to think of ourselves more highly than we should. Humility marks the one who will find God's will. And in verse 6, Paul says to put your gifts to work in the body of Christ. So just right there, immediately after, this is the part of the how-to that keeps going. So humility, put, out, put down your pride. And consider others better than yourself. And find a place of service right here. If you want to find God's will, then find your place of service right here in New Life Church. And that, that movement will allow God to, you know, steer you. Find a place to serve. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Engage with God's love letter to us, the Bible. Study, memorize, meditate, pray, fast so that we can recognize God's will. Because you're familiar with God by reading his letter. Every day, engage with it. This is our living sacrifice. Engage with his letter, the Bible. Some of us would not recognize God's will if it slapped us right in the face. Uh, we're so conformed to this worldly uh, pattern that God's will is terrifying to us. We can't even see it. It's like we're afraid. You know, Teresa and I were staying with Gareth and Carrie, enjoying these last days here in the UAE. And as I was preparing, uh, studying this week, I heard this commotion in their front courtyard. And I didn't know what this was, it was a bunch of, you know, just noises. Ezra, Eden, and Gabriel, they were like in a tizzy. And so I walked over to the front door and I was like, what is going on? And Ezra explained to me that uh, the, 
cat was got out in the courtyard and you know grabbed a bird i don't know how they got the bird out of the cat's mouth without the without it you know halfway eating the bird but but they did you know and so at this point when i when i got there uh the cat was back in the house coming back in the house and eden and gabriel were out there trying to you know get the bird and ezra looked at the cat and said are you like a roaring lion seeking whom you can devour? <laughs> and, and I'm like, wow, you know, and what does that make Eden and Gabriel? They're, they're trying to save the bird. But this bird is just screaming bloody murder, just like, Wah! You know, the bird, the bird doesn't know the difference between the devil, the cat, and salvation from Eden and Gabriel. This is just like, is that what we're like? We need to renew our minds so we can recognize (laughs) these influences in our life. You know, Eden finally got the bird and gave it some like sugar water. I think she Googled that or something. And, you know, this bird was trying to learn how to fly. Put it back up on the little top of the wall and reunited with mom and dad. But the bird was resisting. You know, the bird was trying to get away. They're trying to help. This God's trying to help us. He has a better plan. You know, he's trying to save us from, yeah, the roaring lion, but he has a better plan. You know, for our lives, don't resist. Renew our minds so we can recognize what God is trying to do to help us. These are the ways that we can set the conditions for knowing God's will. Now, when the conditions are set, there's a lot of other things you can do, and that's, that's a different sermon, though. Uh, but what I want us to realize is this, is that God has the best plan. Just like in the Scripture reading, Every good and perfect gift is from above. Paul says it again right here. James said it there. Paul says it uh, at the end of verse 2. You can test and see what, what, is, what the will of God is. And then what does he say? What is good, acceptable, and perfect? See, God's plan is perfect. We're we're trying to hold back the Cheerios to do what with them? God can do so much more with it. I'm going to close with this story. Uh, My my boys, uh, I I, I would, it would terrify Teresa, but all of my boys, you know, from the time they were just strong enough to hold their head up, I would just throw them in the air, you know, and not just, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about my boys, you know, they would come up to me and I would reach down to get them. Then I'd be like, no, let me, let me get back here. And okay. And then, I mean, I would like launch them. And then, you know, when they're coming back down, I'm like, okay, 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 okay. Gotcha. Oh, it was amazing. And I loved it. Don't let us get anywhere near a swimming pool. Because then, I mean, not, not short side, you got to go long ways, you know, because I'll get one hand and one foot, and I don't even know which way they're going to go or which way they're going to land. But they loved it. They 
loved it. And I loved it. Why did I love that so much? They trusted me. They knew there, were, there was danger. They knew there was danger, but they were like, Dad's going to catch me. I mean, I'd have to be careful sometimes. I walk into a room, and they come flying from nowhere. You know, they just knew Dad's going to catch me. He's got it. No. Their trust was going to get a little misplaced. <laughs> I did always catch them. I promise, baby. I didn't drop them. <laughs> Ever. You know, Hayden was especially, I mean, he, he hadn't said a word from the time, and he was three going on four. And he came up to me one time, and he lifted up his hands to me, and he said a word. His first word, he said, up. And man, I threw him higher than ever. He's like, I was so, I just loved those times and I miss those times. We get in a pool and I still, I mean, Nicholas is bigger than me, but I'll try to get him like on my shoulder. I'm saying, I'm going to throw you. I am going to throw you. It might be this much off the water, but I'm going to throw you. I just loved it. I so loved that. Why did I love that? Because they just reveled in the fact that I was throwing them high. You know, listen. And that childlike faith that they had in me, their dad, is the way we need to approach God. Just say, I'm yours. I'm yours. Listen, he, he wants so much more for us than what we can imagine. And I'm not talking about this prosperity gospel. That's not what we're talking about here. What God has for us is so far beyond that and deeper. It's not about cars and money, and that's not what this is about. It's giving our lives to him for his purposes, for his kingdom, for his glory, and just to say, up. Listen, God will make us fly if we just give ourselves to him. I mean, praise his name. Praise God. So much he wants to do for us and in us and through us. In us, through us. He's trying to make us who he originally intended us to be. Back in the Garden of Eden. That's what he's working towards. Perfection. Give yourself to him. Let's give ourselves to him completely, 100%. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given so much. You have, Lord, withheld not even your son in your pursuit of our salvation. Thank you, Lord. And our only response to this great salvation is that we give ourselves completely to you for whatever you would have for us to do. We're holding nothing back. And we just ask you, Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you would transform us and use us in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.